This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've just driven down a narrow road with hedgerows either side to find the place we're visiting today. And I'm now standing in the car park of Burton Mere, the RSPB reserve that covers a huge swathe of the D estuary. This part of the estuary is silted up and it's incredible to think that so much of what we will be walking on was once underwater. In a few minutes I'll be meeting with site manager Graham Jones and his predecessor Colin Wells, who recently retired after 33 years of working here, expecting a little bit of rivalry there. It's a beautiful, sunny, cold day, the perfect day for a walk in the countryside. I was obsessed with birds from about the age of uh, seven. Um, I was watching birds in the local park, I remember. A friend of mine showed me some birds' eggs his granddad had given them. There was a whole thing, but I was a, just obsessed with birds and wildlife from as, as yeah, from just as a really young child. Yeah. It's really wonderful you've been able to turn that into a career. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did do other jobs. Uh, I worked for the civil service for a while and stuff, but it was in my late twenties I decided no, I do really want to do it as a job. Uh, and then when I did a degree and then was quite fortunate. In fact, I even remember asking Colin for some career advice when I was about 15. <laughs> but he clearly put me off and then I went and got a job in the civil service. Uh, and now he's in my boots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that's what you get. <laughs> yeah. I first met Colin when I was 14. Oh, uh, really? Uh, yeah, uh, I think Colin had only just started and he, uh, I was a member of the local Young Ornithologist Club. And he took us out, so I never really thought then, when I was 14, that I would actually be managing this site, sort of, <laughs> 30 years later. Yeah. But the other thing for me was uh, coming from the Wirral and uh, bird watching here as a child. The presumption in conservation is you have to kind of travel, you know, to get your, or move away from where you live to kind of get the, you know, the job that you really want um, so I never thought I'd be able to basically live on the Wirral and you know so but um, the beauty about this job is the way that you can actually see you know the fruits of your labour really um, um, you know just look out there and you can see how each year how the birds increase and you know the nesting successes that we have so yeah so these are the mears um, which were part of the fishery that we bought. So Burton Mio, it was created, if you like, in there was like three purchases over time. So 
the inner marsh farm bit which is at the bottom end or if you like the uh, the western end which we bought in the early 90s that's right isn't it Carl? yes that's right. yeah and then we bought some extra bit of the fields out there increased that and then the last bit was buying this fishery yeah this was uh, this area here was all part of the uh, burton manor estate um which for about 20 years in the early um, 1900s was owned by uh, the Gladstone family. Um, that was Henry Gladstone, who was the son of Prime Minister Gladstone. Basically, Henry won wanted to, well, he did, create this uh, mere here. So he had it dug out and um, planted with trees so he could come fishing here, shooting and even swimming and boating. Uh, on the far side of the mere, which we can't actually see, there are the remains of his boathouse, which he had built. Uh, it wasn't just for his boats, he had a changing room at the top as well, <laughs> and they used to go swimming here. And in really uh, hard winters, when the mere froze over, they would ice skate on here as well. It's hard to imagine now. It just um, looks so wild, doesn't it? It does, yes. Yes. And, uh, yeah, he, he loved this place, and they, he did a lot of uh, planting um, some, with some exotic trees as well. Uh, in, in the woodland coming down to the main car park, there's a, a, a redwood in there which he would have planted. Um, but he, he basically, they, they sold up the, um, the estate in, uh, in the 1920s, and he, he moved back to Harden, which was the... Um, his father's uh, estate so it was sold up and, and the estate was like broken up then mm -hmm. so we're looking out over the mere and we can see all the uh, the lily pads um, which uh, had, when they're in flower it's quite a you know a beautiful sight and, and uh, we get um, dragonflies damselflies here and there's one damselfly we get called the red-eyed damselfly which is a lily pad specialist. So this is it's quite a local species, but this is a good place if you're interested in dragonflies and damselflies to come to see them. Is that a rare type of...? It's quite, quite localised, so they're not uh, that common. When the, f the fishing stopped here, and when we took over, uh, these pools were destocked, so all the, all the big fish were, were sold on to other fisheries. Uh, but we did notice that um, there were some fish being left on the side of, of, of the path which had been half eaten and we suspected that we might have uh, otters here and then with the use of trail cams uh, the warden discovered well he discovered some um, spraint which is basically otter poo on a log on this island which we're looking at now mm -hmm. so he put a trail cam on the log and uh, after a while he retrieved the trail cam and uh, on the computer the footage, footage showed a dog otter. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. We were so excited about that. And since then um, we've actually f uh, filmed uh, a female with cubs as well. Oh, so they seem to be mainly here in, in the winter time. I've never actually seen an otter here. I've just seen them on film. Oh, really? So I, I would love to see a wild oh. otter here. It would make my day. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> One day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
all of the um, droppings you can see so here is we have a big uh, egret roost here uh, of an evening so all the egrets uh, that feed this time of year they feed out on the estuary uh, most of them in the uh, they all uh, you can see it here yeah and then they come in you can see all of the white the, oh, and the uh, roost on these islands and it was wasn't that uh, long ago really that uh, it, little egret started to uh, nest um, so again it's uh, the 90s uh, when was the first nest Colin? Oh, I'm just um, I can remember seeing the first little egret here, yeah. which was in uh, 1989, yeah. and then the numbers slowly increased until we were getting, you know, up to 100 plus coming to roost um, in, in the trees near here. And then we discovered them nesting. It was actually, I think it was in 2005 that we discovered the first four pairs of little egrets nesting up in the trees here. And now the numbers have increased significantly and we're getting up to uh, 80 pairs nesting in the adjacent uh, woodland to, to the reserve, which is absolutely fantastic. And we do these uh, what we call roost counts. So the birds are feeding out on the estuary and then they come here uh, in the evening to roost in the trees, go, basically go to sleep in the trees. And we count them as they're coming in. And the most, the biggest count we've had here is up to 400 little egrets. Wow, from that first one. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. What, what attracts them? Why do they like it here? Well, there's, um, there are species which is benefiting from climate change. So we're getting milder winters here now. So their range is expanding further north. And they found the D estuary, and out on the D estuary, it's basically perfect for them because they like feeding on small fish and shrimps in the tidal pools and on the upper salt marsh around the flashes. And so it's perfect feeding for them. And then they come here to roost because it's a safe roost site. They don't get disturbed. And uh, now, as we said, they're breeding in, in good numbers as well. So you're seeing improvements all the time. Is, are there any birds that you find are reducing in numbers? The water birds um, were doing okay and the waders, so lapwing and redshank and avocets, where we've seen the disappointing losses with birds locally that were on the reserve is the farmland birds. So um, tree sparrows used to nest uh, at the far end of the reserve where Colin used to live when he was the warden here. They've disappeared. We used to have grey partridges around the outskirts of the reserve, they've disappeared, mm -hmm. um, corn buntings. So it's the farmland bird species that are the ones that we really kind of lament losing at the moment. And what's and, causing that? Well, farmland and the way the, uh, far, the intensity of farmland uh, management these days, a lot of the specialist bird species can't really cope with it. Uh, so uh, a lot of farmers take a, a silage cut, which is really where they just cut the grass and then they kind of store it. Uh, to feed to cattle over the winter uh, but how that used to be done uh, say certainly before the war was that they would just say take a single cut at the end of the hay season um, and that would give time for birds to breed and, and hedge management as well a lot of hedges now 
or flailed it's a quick and easy way to manage your hedges but but they just loses all of that biodiversity within the hedges so that's where i think our biggest losses have been mm, that's really sad So, should we take you to another another hide? Yeah, that'd be great. So, some of these birds we were talking about earlier, like the egrets. For when I started, uh, when I became the warden on the reserve here over 30 years ago, um, they were the stuff of dreams, you know. <laughs> I've always been, you know, an avid bird watcher from a very very young age and uh, so it's amazing to see and um, the habitat creation which we've done here is you know we're really seeing the benefits now yeah that must be wonderful yeah so you say you were really interested in birds from an early age can you remember what it was that that sparked that well I think uh, yeah I was just born with it from a very young age I was always you know interested in wildlife and, and uh, my parents weren't that interested but they recognised that I'd got an interest so you know I'd get a you know a book on birds for a birthday or Christmas and I just spent all my time in my head in books and uh, even when I was at, uh, at school I can remember getting told off because I had my, had my bird book at the back reading it when I should have been doing maths uh, <laughs> and things like that I was just a bit obsessed you know and um, I actually went uh, into another career. Uh, when I left school, I uh, became a zookeeper because that's really what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. So believe it or not, I, I left school at 15 and became a zookeeper next day. So, and, where, uh, were you? where were you working? <laughs> I was in a, a zoo down in the Midlands for a couple of years and then I moved up to um, a wildlife park in the Lake District. But I'd always been... It was about birds and birds of prey and, and wildfowl I was really interested in so I you know I was doing some bird watching as well but it was when I was up in the Lake District that I started seeing a lot more wild birds of prey uh, and that really inspired me and then I heard that the RSPB were uh, protecting um, the only pair of golden eagles in England and I thought I want to become a golden eagle warden Believe it or not, two weeks later, I was a Golden Eagle Warden. (laughs) How? (laughs) And I've been with the RSPB ever since. So for about seven years, I was doing contract work for the RSPB. Basically moving around the country. I'd spend a summer on a remote Scottish seabird island, or I'd spend the winter down in in the North Kent marshes. I spent a summer at uh, Titchwell in Norfolk. Um, at Bempton Cliffs in Yorkshire so I moved around quite a bit and then I, I got onto the established staff of the RSPB as an assistant warden and I was sent because in those days that's what they used to do you didn't have much choice you were sent to a reserve so I was sent to Leighton Moss I was assistant warden there for two years and then they sent me to the D-Estuary never wow. been to the D-Estuary before so they sent me uh, to the D-Estuary in 1984 so obviously I spent over 30 years as uh, originally as the warden and then um, with the uh, development of the reserve I became the site manager 
so until you, two years ago. You lived out here? I, yes, in those days you used to get uh, a house with a job. Um, and uh, yes, I, I lived overlooking the reserve, which was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Was it quite a lonely job? It, in the early years, when I was young and starting off, yes, when you were sent to a remote Scottish island and living on your own when I was 20, I did find it a bit lonely, yes. Um, um, but here, no, because, you, you know, you become part of the community and there's lots of uh, bird watchers in this area and that and the numbers of bird watchers have significantly increased since the development of the reserve so you've actually got people who are moving to the Wirral because of the bird watching wow. and uh, it's fantastic and now of course you know an increase in, in, in the membership and the development of Burtmere wetlands there's a lot more com- people coming to the area to, to the reserve and we'll get people actually staying in local accommodation, hotels, B&Bs. Um, there's a few uh, holiday cottages uh, just to see the wonderful wildlife out on the estuary. So there's almost an industry in it. Yes, there is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always think it's fascinating with bird watchers the way they'll get wind of something and then they'll dash right yes, up, you know, for I miles know. to go and see a particular type <coughs> of bird. I know. Graham and I wouldn't do a thing oh like no. that, would we, Graham? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's passion, isn't it? I yeah. Think. Should we go in? Yeah, yeah. yeah great. Called a stone chat because the call sounds like two stones being hit together. So these pools here are where, and you can see the little hide there. So that was the very first hide. Oh. So back uh, when the the reserve was first opened back in the mid 90s, the bit was called Inner Marsh Farm, and that's the Inner Marsh Farm hide. Uh, but then obviously uh, we managed to. Uh, by the Burton Mere end and then allowed um, Colin and his team then to create this new hide. Looking at the other side of these pools that are really important for particularly uh, wintering wildfowl and waders. A little bit quieter today, the water levels are a bit high with all of the rain that we've had. Yeah. Uh, but this can be really good for say breeding avocet in the, in the summer. Yeah. There's always normally something to, to see. It's so peaceful, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Do you, do you're quite a calm person because you're out here all the time. It, 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 it depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I know, you know, joking apart, yeah, yeah, it is. It certainly grounds you being able to, you know, even if, you know, you've got a lot of ears or there's something stressful going on that you can go outside and see stuff and, yeah, yeah absolutely. Beautiful. Yeah. So I was reading there's an Iron Age fort. There is an Iron Age fort, yeah, yeah. Look much like an Iron Age fort now. Uh, yeah, just go th- that way, is that? And then we'll walk up to the point. Okay. We can have a look through there on the way back. Oh, great. Yeah, it's quite beautiful in a different way, isn't it, at this time of year? It's yeah, yeah, it autumn. Yeah, absolutely.
we're standing on a sandstone bridge, aren't we? We are, yes, this big sandstone bridge. And you can just see the railway lines going completely straight. Where, where yeah, does it? Yeah, this is the, the Bidston to Wrexham railway line. Okay. Yeah. The railway was put in in the late uh, 1800s, which effectively stopped the tide from coming right round Burton Point and all the way up to uh, Shottick. So uh, that allowed the uh, so the left-hand side, what is now the reserve, to become more of like a, a freshwater marsh because um, it, it completely stopped the tide coming coming through Um, and then on the right hand side marshes started to to form and um, and as you can see from here we're looking straight out over a marshy area uh, and towards the uh, industry at uh, Shotton Um, so yeah it must have been if you go back in time really quite spectacular looking back from you know, on Burton Point, looking out and seeing the tide come right round and uh, f- flooding all this area here. And the sheep in the field here, is that one of the tenants? That's right, yeah. yeah. Not the sheep, obviously, the farmers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so the sheep are used to graze the salt marsh, but because all of those sheep are out there and it's tidal, so when there's high tides, all the sheep have to be brought in. And we have these refuge areas uh, where the sheep can be sort of, uh, yeah, they can feed before they can go back out again onto the marsh once the high tides have, have passed. So do they just they just naturally know to move? <laughs> oh no, they have to be forcibly moved by our tenant farmer and his shepherd and oh, okay. his collies and we help them out as well. Uh, yeah, it's a tough job. Yeah, they're getting their feet wet. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, I mean, we'll see as we... Uh, I mean, it's, it's huge and you look out and it looks quite flat but the terrain is really tricky it's it's you know deep ditches and gullies and they'll move over time um, and when we go out there to do our breeding bird surveys in the spring and the summer you have to be really careful because but the vegetation grows over it and you could before you know it you can be in a sort of a ditch it's still You've got to respect it. I think that's the right word. Yeah. This view's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This right is my, my favourite place on the <laughs> reserve. Because you can look behind us, you're looking out over Burtonmere wetlands. And, uh, you know, it's just a fantastic view. We're looking straight up the old uh, river bank on the left where the woodland is, going all the way up to Chester. And... Uh, Looking at the reserve, with, as you can see behind, just over here, you can see a lot of uh, wildfowl and all the grey lag geese that just got up there yeah. and get a fantastic uh, view of what you know the RSPB has, has created out there. And then again, we swing round, but across Burton Point, looking out from right out over the estuary, you've got um, Connors Quay over there, the power station. And then further along the main river channel, we've got you can see the tower blocks of Flint, and there's Flint Castle, and all the way up to the point of air where there's uh, Moston Dock. You can see some big cranes there, uh, and then looking out into Liverpool Bay with the, the wind turbines, and then further right we've got Hilbury Island, and then the 
Wirral shoreline. We're looking right up towards Coldy Hill there and Heswell and uh, Ness. Absolutely stunning view. When I first came here, I thought, well, you know, yeah, big marsh and everything. But it, the marsh actually sort of uh, grew on me, and now I absolutely love it. I think it's an amazing place, and this view is stunning. Um, and the national boundary sort of goes down the middle of the of the estuary. I like the way it does feel like the wilderness, and yeah. then there's really yeah. obvious man-made yeah. structures yeah. like the cranes yeah. and the. You can walk out there. I used to do accounts at low water, uh, counting the wading birds right out on the mudflats, and you could be out there on your own and just walk down the middle of the estuary, and uh, absolutely stunning. And like you say, it's like a real wilderness out there. Do you want to see the, the Iron Age? Forward? Yes. Why not? Or what was off the Iron Age? Forward? <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was a very long time ago. <laughs> There's been a lot of quarrying o over the centuries at, at Burton Point and um, of course at that time they didn't really think about the Iron Age fort so I would say the majority of it has actually disappeared due to quarrying. Yeah. It's a, a great place to visit in, in the spring um, when the bluebells are out and this is covered the area we're standing now is covered with bluebells. It's absolutely stunning. So you've got to have a bit of a vivid imagination here because now we're looking out over the uh, what remains of the Iron Age uh, fort. You can see the, the bank there uh, and the dip. So basically it was a little homestead on here with a, a fortification and um, you have Burton Village over there. Um, so if, if the villagers felt threatened, they would all come down here behind the uh, palisade. And it was a gr good place to defend. But as we were talking about before, the tide would have come right round Burton Point. So we're actually on, on, on a headland here. So it would have been easily a, easy to uh, defend against marauding Vikings or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> There's still a bank, is that? Is that yep. part of where it would have been? Yes, that's right. But a, there's a lot of Burton Point has been quarried away, especially down here and the other side, and that part of that fortification would have been just dug away and destroyed. Oh, that's you talking over the centuries. But then just below here, where we're standing, um, where they quarried away the stone, then be became quite a good sort of um, sheltered harbour. So in medieval times, uh, boats were being moored here and um, their, um, whatever they were carrying was then carted up to, to Burton Village where they, they held a market there. So there was a track coming down from the village to here. So this place, you know, in medieval times, there was quite a hive of... Uh, Activity. So we had a visit from um, English Heritage who look after all of the ancient monum monuments in England. The lady came down and I was showing her around and then she said, Colin, you've got badgers here. There's a badger set in, that, in the ancient fort. You've got to get rid of them. I said, but we can't do that. We're the RSPB. <laughs> anyway, 11,000 pounds later, we had removed 
the badges. So what we did, we created an artificial set, which is just here, where those big rocks are around those trees. Oh yeah. We had to make sure that the, uh, the badges were using the artificial set. We knew that because we put loads of peanuts down and put a, put a trail camera on so we could see that the badges were going in and out of the set. And then we had to put one-way gates on, on the old set on the entrance so when the badges came out, they couldn't get back in. Yeah, that took some canny thinking, didn't it? Did yes. And yeah. do they do they still use the, the they're artificial? They're, they're around in this area, yes. Uh, as we were walking across that field, you could see where the badgers had been digging up the field. Um, yeah, there's a good population of badgers in this area, and we, we call them naughty badgers because they can get up to naughty things like digging up ancient monuments <laughs> and eating birds' eggs. But uh, we we do love them really. a long time ago to act as screening to the pools so as people walked down they didn't disturb the pools but these older trees we planted uh, my son helped out with the local scouts when he was eight and now he's 39 <laughs> so you can see there were there were little saplings so you can see how tall they've grown wow. it's amazing so when I walk down here I always think of my son. Oh, so. <laughs> it really shows you the passage of time. Yes. So you've had your family involved in it all then as well? Yes, yes. Uh, my son, you know, obviously was brought up on, on the reserve. Um, I think I might have over-egged it a bit with him in terms of bird watching. Um, being dragged around, looking at birds all over the place so um, anyway to cut a long story short <laughs> he's actually getting a bit more interested now in his oh, late okay. 30s which is I'm really quite pleased about I think that happens sometimes doesn't it yes it does, yeah, things yeah. And come back. when he moved away to, to university and, and um, he did when he, he came back to visit one day and he said dad I realise now what a fantastic place this was to live and being brought up, you know, in this area. Yeah. So I was, I was quite chuffed about that. Then. That whistling noise that you can hear, that that's the widgeon, the male widgeon. And most of the widgeon come from sort of uh, the far east uh, or the north and come here to winter. Uh, so this to them is like... Uh, yeah, it's just, this isn't a cold day for them. This is a really <laughs> this is fantastic. You were saying before about the car park getting full. If there's a rare bed, does that happen often? Um, it can do. Yeah, uh, we yeah, spring and autumn is the times when we can get a rarity and uh, we can get people travelling a long way to come come and see them and you know you can get thousands of extra visitors on so word just spreads and yeah that's arrive. right well, well it's, uh, there's two um, 
companies really in the UK that will kind of broadcast bird news uh, so it's quite easy to find out where those rare birds are. We haven't had one for a little while. We did have one bird in the in in the oh, there's a Chetty's warbler. Quite loud. Yeah. A little bit. Had a bird in the in July called a Terrick sandpiper, but that only really stayed one evening and just after dawn the following day it disappeared. But if that would have hung around for a bit longer we'd have had quite a lot of visitors. Let them think about car parking and stuff, yeah. Are they not put off by a sudden influx of people? Particularly the birds out on the sort of wetland area don't really see people um, at all. So, yeah, so they can feed without even knowing that they're being watched. So, <laughs> without being aware of their celebrity yeah, status. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can remember one morning doing... Um, a wader survey from that hide which we were in earlier, marsh covered hide. I was looking at the, the, the lappings and seeing how many chicks there were and then I noticed this small wader on, on a, a muddy area. I thought that's different. And it was actually an American buff-breasted sandpiper. So uh, we put the news out and over the three days of its stay we had about a thousand visitors God. trying to get into that hide. <laughs> <laughs> it was like sardines. <laughs> we had to manage them a bit. But, um, yeah, fascinating. This bird had uh, got obviously got blown off course on migration and turned up at Burton near Wetlands. Um, what would get you to jumping into your car and racing yeah. off to another part of the country? Well, it all depends. depends how rare it is, really, <laughs> and how special a bird it is. Is there anything you've wanted to see that you never have? Um, in Britain? Oh, yeah, I'm sure there's... Um, yeah, there'll be lots of birds that I'd like to see in Britain that I haven't seen. But all ridiculously rare. When I was a teenager, um, you know, it was uh, in my early 20s, it was a great thing to do, and I had a lot of fun, but, but now... Um, I'd maybe do it over a long weekend, you know, <laughs> just dashing back in the car and dashing back the next, you know, same day is something that I've got a bit too old for, but I still still do it as long as it's in a relatively kind of short distance. Yeah. yeah. But I used to do all sorts of crazy things when I was a, a te teenager and in my early 20s, chasing rare birds. You know, driving to Scotland and back in the same day, you know, North Scotland for something really rare. So a lot of stuff I've actually now, if you like, seen in Britain, so it'd have to be really, really rare and really kind of special. So did you ever do something like that and then be disappointed when you got there? Not oh, well, quite often you wouldn't see the bird, yeah. I remember driving to Cornwall with people in the mid-90s for a bird called a a little busted and got down there and it'd gone and didn't really see anything and <laughs> to drive back again no that's all part of the, if you like part challenge of the part of the thing and the rspb for me has given me opportunities to travel abroad on expeditions and to help out uh, countries which uh, are less fortunate than than the uk um, with so conservation work? For conservation work, yes, doing bird surveys and, or training, training people. So, uh, you know, for instance, I spent four weeks out in Saudi Arabia after the first Gulf War, 
monitoring the impact of the oil pollution on the Gulf Coast, uh -huh. uh, counting waders and, and uh, liaising with the authorities. And I also spent uh, four weeks on the Cape Verde Islands on a, an island called Razo Island, seven square kilometers, actually a desert island with no water. We spent 10 days camping on this island, studying this lark called the Razo Lark, which is only found on that island. And at that time, there were only the world population was only 90 birds. So that was quite an experience, actually. So I've got to thank the RSPB for giving me the you know, opportunity. So you're still, uh, you're still very much involved, even though you've retired now? Well, in a, in a voluntary capacity, I've been helping out with uh, some of the surveys, and, um, and I've done the odd guided walk as well, which I've really enjoyed. Yeah. Must be hard to let go, in a way. It was hard to let go, but like I say, I did over 40-odd years working for the RSPB. And I decided that I had to perhaps start thinking about myself and family and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and uh, just uh, enjoy the place as well. This episode of Liminal was presented, produced and edited by me, Laura Davis. You can find the series wherever you listen to your podcasts. But for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the Entail app for iOS and Android. Liminal is a Laudable production for the Liverpool Echo. You can find out more about Laudable and its other local podcasts by following us on social media, on Twitter, where we are at Laudable Pods, and Instagram by searching for Laudable underscore podcasts. If you like what you heard, please rate and review Liminal and help other listeners discover us too. And join us next week when we'll be taking another walk along the coastline and meeting some of the people who have made their lives there. <laughs>